So then when my husband, who's working his own movie, he says, I've been working too much. And he wants to know if he can spend some more time with me. Instead of me hearing in real time, the ghosts are whispering in my ears. And I'm like, oh my God, this man, he's trying to put me in a cage. He's trying to smother me. So I come up with all of these stories. I'm working off this ancient script. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple, Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. Hi, I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couple Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for over 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Julia DeGangi, and she is a neuropsychologist who works with leaders, corporate teams, and couples to address pain in their lives. She is the founder of Neural Health Partners and is an expert on the effects of chronic stress on our brain and our behavior. Welcome, Dr. DeGangi. Thank you so much for for joining us on our podcast today. Well, thank you so much to you both for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into your work, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Um, so where to start? So I am a neuropsychologist right now, which means I'm a clinical psychologist with specialized training in the brain. And technically my expertise or my beat, as I like to call it, is the relationship between your brain, your pain, and your relationships. But the way that I got here is um, I really, so I've certainly done a lot of neuroscientific research, neuropsychological research, a lot of fMRI and EEG, but I really think about my work through the lens of human suffering. So I have been kind of thinking about pain for a long time before becoming a neuropsychologist. I did a lot of international humanitarian aid So I've worked with um, torture survivors and combat soldiers and HIV AIDS orphans and genocide survivors. I've worked in politics. So I've done a lot of work on presidential campaigns and at the White House. And that was really motivated by thinking about how can we reform systems, right? How can we do political work and think about our political systems in a way to ameliorate human suffering? And through all this work, you know, I just got really curious about the intersection between systems. How do really large macro systems, right? So the communities that we live in, the countries that we live in, how does that intersect with us, not just at an individual level, but at a neurobiological level? And uh, I think it's been a fascinating career. I uh, always say that it feels like a vocation to me and I feel so humbled to be able to work with people and serve people in some of the most painful experiences of their lives. 
Can you talk about any differences that you've noticed between the way women's brains process pain and the way men's brains process pain? So what I will say is um, I think when there are, if there are, so obviously when there's a well-regulated brain, it means that we're both thinking very well and we're feeling very well. And those things are integrated, right? So we know what we're, I always say the healthiest person is a person who is able to know what they think and think basically what they feel. Um, but when you see disruptions or dysregulations in the brain, sometimes um, you might see a more, and this obviously this can vary a lot, but I think with a lot of men who haven't been kind of taught as, at a young age, how to have kind of an emotional language and how then that affects their brain development. Um, sometimes you can see more blunted, hypo-aroused postures in men. So maybe they might, on the whole, experience more problems identifying their emotions or having the language to speak about their emotions. I think the way that we treat little boys sometimes can be um, set them up in a way that doesn't allow for the most robust emotional life as adults. Now, when we're dealing with couples, obviously this, there can be a, a very big source of pain and suffering, you know, especially if you don't have a, a healthy relationship. Now, I was, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, about your work with, you know, the brain and suffering, pain and, and relationships specifically. Yeah. Yes, I can talk a lot about that. So <laughs> what I think is fascinating is that the brain is what I call a transrational machine. And what this means is that it is not an either or machine, right? It is not a machine of thinking and it is not a machine of feeling. It is a machine of both. And we experience this on an individual level, right? So we sometimes are people who want wild adventure and sometimes we want routine. Sometimes we want safety and sometimes we want freedom. I think most fundamentally our conflict comes because we are, the brain is wired for fierce independence and autonomy and deep dependence and connectivity. And until we recognize that our lives are structured as a both and, I think a lot of times we get into conflict in our relationships. And part of this happens because, because we are, are literally wired for connection. Our partners dysregulate us not just emotionally, but physiologically, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these interesting studies where you look at, you know, couples that are doing well and couples that are doing not so well. And you see pretty dramatic changes in physiological markers in terms of pupil dilation and respiration and heart rate. So I think there's this interesting thing, um, and I'd love to hear what you guys think too, where in our culture, I think we've come a long way thinking about the development of the individual mindset, right? So kind of this idea that in a lot of ways, I'm responsible for how I feel. And if you think about there, like, you know, coaching is a big industry these days, and it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to tap into my personal power. That's amazing, right? But where we've made these kind of incredible advances in terms of individual personal power, I think we're kind of lagging on the relational power and the relational intelligence, right? So the question is, how can we help people understand that they actually do, especially intimate romantic partners, they have a fundamental role to play in the regulation 
of the other person. And right. Cause then you were like, okay, well that becomes a slippery slope. If I let that play out too far, because then like, am I not in control of my own feelings or emotions? But again, the brain is transrational. So part of, so it's this very sophisticated, although I think if we had better training and education about this, this would be easier. It's like, how can individuals recognize that they need to both regulate themselves and there is a responsibility to think thoughtfully about how you regulate or dysregulate your partner? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that what we're noticing, and we've been married, we've been together 24 years. And in the beginning, it is very separate. You know, it's his life and my life. And in the last five years, since our children have left, we're really merging in a way that is really incredible that I don't think you get when you're married for three years or new, you know, into it. And it's this really long term. I mean, we, we're in the same environment. We eat the same food. We are having like very similar experiences all the time. And, and you can feel that regulation and that dysregulation so much more profoundly Mm -hmm. than we did, you know, when he's working on his doctorate and the kids are running around and there's so much other stuff that is happening. And I really think it is a developmental thing. And it would be interesting if, I don't know if there's any long-term studies. We saw one where, you know, the brain, how it lights up when couples are falling in love. And then if, if a couple does make it to this place, it looks even better than that, whatever the brain chemistry is of that bond or connection. And so, you know, this idea of teaching people from a physiological level what's happening and the, the interesting thing that you were talking about, about being separate and being together, like wanting connection and wanting separate, trauma tends to make people be separate. And we just listened to your TED talk. And that's the interesting thing. We were always wondering, will TED talk let a couple go on? Because we've only seen one person on there. Um, this idea that it drives connection to go through our suffering and to share it. And to, I think you said something on there about, I, I, I know your suffering, so I, I know you and where you've been and, and that connection. And so I think that's a really important thing. And can you talk more about why does suffering make us connect? Well, suffering can make us connect, mm-hmm. right? It absolutely doesn't necessarily make us connect. So um, right now, uh, I'm actually writing a book for Harvard Business Review. And the, basically, they asked me to write a book on how leaders can think about their connection to their team in these incredibly painful times. And so one of the things I'm talking about in the book, and, and I also think this is very interesting, um, So I'm going to take a little loop around and then bring me back if I start to get too untethered. But what I think, because the brain is the mothership, we are who we are, who we are across situations. So my favorite quote in the world is everywhere you go, there you are. And I'm sure you guys have worked with people who swear to God and they mean it as soon as I leave this SOB, as soon as I have another child, as soon as my child goes to college, as soon as I get a new job, as soon as I go to a new city, I mean, as soon as I lose the weight, as soon as I gain the weight. And that's not, that is not like ground zero of the change, right? And so I think there's so much connection. If we could start to think about relationships well, we would think about relationships well. 
And so the, 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 if there is a beauty of suffering, and I don't say that lightly because it is horrific to the extreme that some people suffer, it is nothing in the world provides as profound an opportunity for utter transformation. And part of the reason suffer, it just cracks you wide open. Sometimes it shatters you. And so if and when you pick up the pieces, you do have the opportunity to think very differently. And ironically, or almost counterintuitively, you have the opportunity to think very differently about safety. So people tend to, after great suffering, great trauma, great loss, go in two separate ways. You become more brittle. You say, oh my God, right? If you think about the classic presentation of PTSD or something like this, um, let's say someone's living with PTSD for 10 years, you can only get PTSD following a trauma, you know, the, their life starts to shrink. Maybe now they're not seeing people. They're not going to restaurants. They won't go to movie theaters. They won't, they can't hold down jobs because they think, oh my God, if I do this, it's going to be dangerous. The other extreme is a person who says, you know what? It was all a myth to begin with. Mm. Like this is, this is like a, this is like a wild, wild rodeo out here. And I can paralyze myself with the what if. What if is the most terrifying conversation that we have with ourselves? And what's interesting to me, having worked in very, very traumatized situations for a long time, is big T trauma is 100% a thing, full stop. Most people though go down. We know that most people who suffer from trauma recover and, and naturally, we talk about how the brain is naturally resilient. So if I fall down and skin my knee, I wash that thing off, I give it a little bit of rest and it's gonna heal naturally, right? We don't have to like get apps in there and get doctors in there and get medications in there. We just like give it what it needs. So when people are able to kind of like have the opportunity to recover naturally, a lot of times they can do that. So it's kind of like um, when people can start to develop a different relationship with what life is really about, and I think a lot of times if we, if we have not been traumatized or we have not endured great loss, we're, we're still kind of in the, the fog of the myth, if that makes sense. It makes uh, total sense. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that we talk about with our couples is that, you know, yes, your physical body is going to heal with time, but the emotional small t traumas that you go through, that doesn't heal with time. It heals with actually leaning into the pain. And I think you talked a little bit about that in, in your TED talk as well, you know, and so many couples aren't taught that these small T traumas, these small emotional wounds that we collect throughout our lives are inevitably going to come up within a relationship and they are not equipped to handle it. A lot of couples, they shy away from it, right? They start away from the conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is something that happens a lot, you know, with when, when we talk about emotional vulnerability, you know, and how couples need to move deeper into those, those stages of emotional vulnerability, but that's painful to do, right? It's painful because it does bring up a lot of those past traumas and past wounds. And I think, I mean, I think you're making such a great point. And you said like, that is painful. 
So it's interesting, right? That the thing we want is itself painful, right? So what I think a lot about is like, everything is going to hurt on some level because there's always these trade-offs. And if we could think better about how we invariably are going to be forced to hold our pain, that conversation with ourselves really changes everything, right? Because all the time, so I conceptualize the number one thing I think that I treat is avoidance, okay? So whether it is a high conflict couple, whether it is a situation in a large global organization with their leadership team, or whether it is an individual with PTSD, it's the, the, like the avoidance that shrinks us that we believe is gonna keep us safe, but it just really makes us so inflexible and brittle. And so it's like, when I finally say this pain, I think it's keeping me safe, but it's making it worse. So all the time, for example, I'm sure you guys see this too. You have somebody who really cares about some, somebody else and that person does something they don't like, okay? Mm-hmm. And instead of having the painful and the tough conversation, the person avoids. And what, what the, the great, the brain plays a dirty trick on all of us, okay? The brain is the most glorious machine in the entire universe. When it comes to pain, it's remarkably primitive because, so first of all, the brain is not that big, right? It's about 2% of your body weight. It's less than three pounds. And that's part of the miracle, right? Like that, that tiny amount of real estate, that's the most precious real estate in the world. So this idea that your brain had to get very efficient with processing pain. And so the way it processes, whether you're feeling inadequate, whether you're feeling rageful, whether you're feeling anxious, whether you're feeling agitated, or to a certain degree, whether you just burned your hand on a hot stove, you have a physical injury, your brain's like, nope, shut it down. Let's stop. Well, the problem with this is that life where the brain does not diverge, life does diverge. So the life is like, There's a difference between a hot stove and something your partner keeps doing to you that's very painful. Your brain though is like, nope, let's get out of here. And maybe I get out of here by fighting, right? That's a way of avoiding. I get out of there by freezing or I get out of there by just like, I I, I storm off all the time. So it's giving this kind of psychoeducation to people that that avoidance over time, the irony, the tragedy of it is it's gonna cost a lot more. Mm-hmm. because you need that relationship, especially with your primary attachment figure, your, your partner, right? So the cost of avoidance is, I, I think it's astronomical. Yeah. I use the example of a credit card bill. You know, that bill is due. With you can interest. either pay it now or you could pay it later with interest. Right. <laughs> That's an awesome example. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about how trauma, emotional pain, unresolved wounds, how they impact us in terms of our intimacy, in terms of our connection? Sure. Yeah. That's a really great question. So I think I'm going to approach this one by saying, I'm going to talk about the brain a little bit. So I think the best way to think about the brain is as a pattern detector, right? So there is an overwhelming amount of information that your brain is processing every day. I mean, everything from sounds to smells to 
you know, I mentioned today, you know, our, our, our babysitter was unable to come. So you're just like on your heels hustling. So to make sense of 24 hour news cycle, social media, I mean, what you're going to feed your kids, it's overwhelming. So your brain to navigate what would otherwise be in a fundamentally unmanageable amount of information goes, Hey, I'm going to really help you out here. And I'm going to use heuristics. I'm going to use patterns and say, this goes with this and this goes with this and this doesn't go with this. So it's a, your brain is a pattern detection machine. And in some ways it's, it's glorious. Okay. But the problem is those patterns started a long time ago. And I always say the oldest pattern is the strongest pattern. So if I have an early life trauma, my parents, for example, were intrusive, right? So they, they just, they didn't, they didn't read me right. And, and what's the, another sort of dirty trick of the universe is oftentimes our parents were doing the best they could with what they had. Okay, but my parents didn't read my biology right and they're intrusive to me. So now I come up with this unspoken, unconscious, I call it the unspoken script model about how people are gonna smother me, okay? So then when my husband, who's working his own movie, right? Cause I'm just like, I got my, my script on my movie running. He's got his, he comes in, he's like, he just wants like, you know, he says I've been working too much. And he wants to know if he can spend some more time with me. Instead of me hearing in real time, the ghosts are whispering in my ears, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, this man, he's trying to put me in a cage. He's trying to smother me. So I come up with all of these stories. And then instead of meeting that moment with responsivity, right? I'm working off this ancient script where now I'm telling the story about how my husband is trying to smother me when really like maybe my husband just wants to hang out. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah, we call those emotional echoes, you know, and people aren't able to put two and two together. I talked about, um, you know, a client in, in another podcast, I talked about a client that I had that his, his mother was his sole source of comfort and bonding. And his father really was not, you know, didn't, didn't want to pay him any attention whatsoever. So, you know, he would stand at the door every day at the same time when his mother would come home from work. And one day she was late and he was in tears and terrified and flash forward into his current marriage and his wife said, I'll be home really quickly on the phone. I'll be there soon. And she wasn't. She actually had an appointment at the dentist and he didn't know about. And so now he is tearing down the, the road in his car, looking for her, searching for her, because that same emotional echo is reverberating through him. And he's not able to connect the two logically because it's the emotional echo. Absolutely. And to your point about like, you got to pay the credit card bill Mm -hmm. in order, you have to have the awareness, like, okay, here's how I'm going to pay the credit card bill. So when we kind of are operating out of these old patterns, again, it's like, you can imagine sort of like an iceberg, you need kind of levels of awareness. Mm -hmm. And some people, when they start, they think it's all about the wife's late at the dentist. They, right. they think 100% mm-hmm. of the situation is explained by that. And it's like, when you really start to break through, at the end of it, you're like, oh my God, it was like 1% was about the dentist. Mm-hmm. 
I think you know, that we have so much information bombarding us from our media and, you know, just life that it's very difficult for people to settle down. And we see a, a lot of sexless marriages and, you know, our, our sexuality is dependent on being able to get into that other place, not the fight or flight response, right? The, the parasympathetic nervous system and to be able to relax together. And if, if we're there, we're, we think it's this moment that's causing it, people just stay separate because if they, if they lean into it, they're going to feel more. Have you, have you seen that where, you know, people are just avoiding each other, especially when it comes to physical contact? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you're, I mean, obviously I think, you know, sex is one of the most intimate things you can do, particularly in a longer term relationship, right? Cause you know, if it's, you know, early in the relationship, it seems somehow exciting or free and, and, and the, the beauty and the thrill of early in the relationship is in that moment, I can be, I am, I am actually free from my old patterns. I am now exactly who I want to be. And this man is exactly like who I need him to be. Right. So for a moment, whether it's six months or, you know, three weeks, you think you like the universe just handed you a new script. Well, as time goes on, you're like, wait a second, there's, there's been some kind of mistake. And so I think to your point about do, have I worked with couples who are kind of in these patterns of avoidance? Not only have I worked with them, but the irony is a lot of their fighting is a, an avoidance strategy to keep them away from the thing that is actually the deeper pain point, right? Because it's much more frightening. So if I can fight with you, and maybe you really, you know, I work with a lot of high conflict couples and those couples um, have some pretty significant struggles, right? So even if I'm fighting about very legitimate things on some level, um, this, this whole program that we're running is we think we're really running it because there, there might've been a, you know, a real problem, but it prevents us from kind of getting down into these like pieces that are like still frozen on the iceberg. So I think, yes, I think avoidance is actually oddly enough, the chronic problem you're facing, but I think where that avoidance lies, this is kind of where I think I think a little bit differently than a lot of couples therapists. I think the best couples work is when two people are in earnest working on the couch, but they're working only on themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I think a lot about this idea of self-leadership. Okay, so I, I mentioned I'm writing this book for Harvard Business Review for leaders. So, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is like, well, who is the most difficult person to lead? And I think if you asked a lot of couples, they'd be like, <laughs> right? right my right. spouse right this guy over here or my partner over here whatever right. my wife um and really it is myself is the hardest person i guys i could tell you a whole list of the way my kids could do it and my spouse could do it and my coworkers could do it right like if only the rest of the world would read right here on page 57 it says that you should so what happens though, is then you have to say, okay, if I'm the hardest person to lead, if I really want radical freedom, radical power, I then have to ask myself, okay, well, dang, I'm the hardest person to lead. What is the most difficult situation 
in which to lead the most difficult person. And that is my own pain. Mm -hmm. Until I can lead myself through my own moments of pain, you can't really trust the relationship. Mm -hmm. Because the second you tell me, hey girl, that is not that the what your script on page number 87, that's not how it's supposed to be. I then think, oh my God, the script that keeps the world, you know, revolving on its axis is not safe. So I become remarkably safer when I start to truly recognize what is mine to work on and what is my partner's. And that, remember how I talked about the brain being this transrational machine? When I'm like, okay, I know how to hold this pain and specifically I know how to hold it in my own body. So one of the things I think about, I'm happy to talk, I got a marriage, man. Um, you guys know who uh, Terry Real is? No, no, we're not familiar. Oh, he's, he's another uh, a couples therapist. He talks about um, He talks about normal marital hatred. And it always cracks me up and he has a joke. He goes, um, I've been doing these talks. He's been doing it for a while, you know, 40, 45 years. And every time I get on the stage and talk about normal marital hatred, it's so weird. Not a single time has somebody come up to me after the talk and said, that thing, what did you mean by that? Right? So it's like <laughs> how we can kind of hold the pain in our relationships in our own bodies. So for me, I start to really realize now I'm, I tend to be like a heady person. And it's really helped me to kind of come into my own body more because that wasn't supernatural for me. So like, for me, it's like, I feel this thing in my throat. Mm. And when I start to feel this thing in my throat, I'm like, I have two choices. I could either like, let it out, you know, like, oh, we got to talk about this. and Or I can kind of drop back. But the dropping back for me isn't great because that pain in my body is like, I, I got to get out of here. Mm -hmm. it, you know, we, uh, we did a huge hike in 2016, where we uh, started in Yosemite and did 20 days in the backcountry over 180 miles. And one of the rules that we came up with on this hike was that when you are in pain, you blame your partner. That's the first thing if you something do. goes wrong. If yeah. something goes wrong, or if you're in pain, you blame your partner. And it's because that's exactly what happens right? Is, you know, you look at a toddler and a toddler, if they are, you know, in pain or angry or frustrated about something, you know, they're going to lash out at their parents and they're going to lash out because their parents are safe people for them to kind of take all of that anger and take all of that pain. And so when we are in relationships and we create a very, you know, intimate and vulnerable bond with, with a long-term committed partner, that's where our pain is going to go first. That's where our anger is going to go and blame and everything goes that way. And you are absolutely right. The, the only way to actually start shifting things is to focus on your part and your piece. And we tell all our couples, you know, each of you had have contributed equally to the condition of the relationship. And it only shifts if you are working on your part. Right. And so that's the work that I do with the husbands and Gene does that work with the wives and helping them identify their individual piece and what they bring to the table, where they begin, where they end. So because only then they can create synergy. Right. Which is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, you'll see a child like uh, we at, we were at a family party and this five year old uh, tripped and fell in front of everybody. And he, he just 
kind of looked up and I was like, are you okay? And he's like, and then he found his mom and then he melted down. Right. And I think that's the same thing that that's that thing you're talking about. Do we, do we voice our pain or do we swallow it, swallow it and hide it? (laughs) And what happens in our brain when we choose either one of those and why do we wait until we're in a safe place before we can then express? So, I mean, you just said so many, both of you said so many interesting (laughs) things there. So I always talk about, um, everyone has like a metaphor for the brain, right? Just because like, it's, it's obviously trapped behind the skull. It's hard to see, even though we've made remarkable, um, advances with neuroimaging technologies, it's still like pretty, like, I mean, I think it's probably the biggest mystery in the world. Right. But, um, so I like to talk about the brain as you, you have, I call it your one brain two runner problem. So what this means is you have one brain, but it is effectively powered by two different runners. And one of those runners is like Usain Bolt. It's this like sprinter. It's super fast, it's explosive, and it's very powerful. Your other brain is like, you know, these people who um, they run ultra marathons. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I'm like, you couldn't get me to run for 10 minutes. So like how people run for like 24 hours is beyond me, but that's another podcast. Right. So your, your marathoner is remarkable. And frankly, in some ways, and you're, so the sprinter is more of your emotional brain. Mm-hmm. And then the marathoner is more of kind of the, the, the prefrontal cortex. People talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's the newer part of the brain. It's so sophisticated, but it's slower, but it's so sophisticated, right? In a way it's like, Hey, do you want to have a 15 second sprint or do you want to run until Sunday, right? It's like, I know which one I'm choosing. So I think what happens is when, when you have your runners in the zone in neuroscientific terms, we would call it like functionally integrated. So that just means that like the brain, all the parts of the brain that need to be communicating well are communicating well. And that's when you are in your zone, you are calm, you are in control, you are creative and you are connected. Okay. Well, when I get triggered, my gun goes off, whatever it happens, um, my sprinter starts to go. And once the sprinter starts to go, it's like the sprinter needs to run her lap around the whole trek. And that's when I can come back together again. It's like in a great example of this that we've all seen is have you ever tried to stop a toddler's meltdown? There ain't nothing to be done. You just got to wait that out. And then when they come back into orbit, they're like, okay mommy do you wanna and you're because I have I have little kids and you're just like oh my god that was crazy (laughs) so but my point here is that like I think that when people get provoked it's like you there's this edge and if you can figure out what your edge is for me it's kind of like that sensation in my throat for some people like um, my husband his hands will start to sweat Mm. I can it in session like I have a lot of people that will really start bouncing their leg out like they're fine and then you start to see the leg going more and more and you're like okay like let's let's just take a beat here right so having this remarkable awareness of yourself and of your partner and the other thing I wanted to say um just to go back to something you said when you made that great example of the toddler losing waiting to see his mother And this is, again, very complicated in adult relationships, but one of the greatest gifts I think that we can give our partners is to say, I know that you have your script and sometimes your script is going to get activated and I'm going to give you a gift and I'm going to hold that activation. 
So for example, let's say like, um, thinking of a couple that I worked with years ago and the wife was much more like she had a much higher emotional temperature than the husband. And we worked together for a long time. And one of the, the biggest things was like, she kind of came to this realization, like, this is just who I am. Like, I just, I just run emotionally kind of hot. And sometimes when I talk, I'm actually not even mad at you. I'm just like, I'm going about something. I get pretty animated. And the husband was like, you know what? I recognize now that that's just you. And I now no longer see it as like a threat against me. So now I can just give that to you. And, you know, maybe it's just 20 minutes. So it's like, you know how you said, like, when the child saw the mother, the child could finally. Mm -hmm. So we need less of that if we're healthy, whole adults, but we still need it sometimes. And if there's kind of this thing and it's tough in relationships where your partner is always like, well, you need to, you need to don't, you know, don't come at me with that. It's one thing to be calling someone derogatory names and throwing stuff at their heads. And it's another thing to assume good intent and give your partner the grace, the radical grace of saying, this is what it means to be a whole human being and be in a whole human relationship. And I can create space for some of that and not take it personally. I, I think that's awesome what you just said. And, and I think that it's easier said than done, right? And and what you said on your TED talk is like practice makes permanent, right? And that's that's really the key is couples practicing this, being able to be open, you know, and and kind of just just take that that initial pain that happens. Uh, one thing I wanted to comment on what you said earlier is um, finding that edge. I, I think that's so important for people and you know, I, I think I would say that also it's that physiological response. You're talking about, you know, feeling it here or feeling a, your husband feeling cold in his hands because the brain is going to have more of a physiological response first before we have a thought about what is happening, right? I mean, I, I would imagine that's the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I always say that our native language is a language of emotion, right? When we all came into this world, we came gnashing and thrashing and screaming and hollering. And so it, through the course of this remarkable human development, the top of the brain, you know, sort of comes later and kind of like is able to tamp that down. Mm -hmm. But so often it's such a loss because we lose our connection to that emotionality. And what's also so fascinating, I think about living in, in today's day and age is we are obsessed with data, right? I mean, we can't get enough of it. Like I can wear weird things on my wrist to figure out like how many, I mean, it's, it's wild, right? The most powerful form of data is our emotions. And so yeah. often we just sever ourselves from that, right? And I call it, um, so a lot of times what's interesting is when there's a, a recurrent thing, I call it, um, somebody is thirsty and you're giving them a sandwich, right? So, you know, an example of this would be, uh, okay, so I'll use another, I'll have, use another example of a couple. It was a man and a woman again. Um, and the woman really wanted this, the core message from her husband to say, you are good. You are okay and you are good. 
And she didn't have, I think, at first she didn't have the awareness and then that made her too vulnerable to say that. And so a lot of times what her husband would do is he would, let's say like she was working on a work project and, and she was like, you know, do you think this is good enough? Or she would ask him some questions and he would give these solutions. And so he was like, why do we keep having the same conversation? Like, is there, and then he would be like, did I misread it? And maybe I should have said this solution instead. So what she was really making an ask for, but she herself didn't have the insight yet, was she was really saying, I need you to connect with me in this emotional way because I have an emotional need that needs to be held. I am thirsty. And this guy is frustrated because he's, he's hustling. He's like, here's another sandwich. Here's a bologna sandwich. Here's a turkey sandwich. How about a ham sandwich? And, and he's like, why am I? So he's frustrated. And so this, and then it just becomes this like downward cycle. And what's so interesting, and I'm certainly have been guilty of this in my own relationship is like, instead of just being like, it would help me if you said this, because this is kind of what my script needs you to say, like, just do this. And it's a leap for the partner because that might, that's probably not in their script. Like you're asking me about a problem with your work. Why can't I tell you that two plus two equals four? Like, why do, if you say it's two plus two, four, why do I have to say you are good? So I'm going to, okay, fine. I'll, I'll come your way and I'll make the leap too. So it's just kind of like when there's a, this awareness of like, can I have the courage and, the, and frankly, the remarkable self-leadership to say, this is what I need to be whole in this relationship. Yeah, and that, that takes a lot of self-discovery to understand that you actually need water and not a sandwich, right? Mm -hmm. And then to be able to communicate that to your partner. Like I use the example of, uh, uh, you know, notifications on your dashboard in your car. There's a warning light goes off. You know, that's an emotion, an emotion telling you something, you know, and that's a lot of data that's it's, it's giving you. But you know, how far is your car going to go if you continue to ignore all those warning lights that go on the dashboard? Or what the warning light even means. Or the warning, yeah, what does it mean, right, right. What would you say to a person that was activated by their trauma? What could they do in order to uh, begin a healing process? And what could their partner do to help them? Such a good question. So if someone has had a historic trauma, right? So there, there's a very big distinction between I am currently being traumatized, right? I am currently being beat up. I am currently living in a very you know, violent community. I am currently, okay, so I'm assuming trauma now becomes historic and a lot that's, you know, most of the trauma that I treat, there's some memory, whether it was war, whether it was childhood, whatever. Um, and the most effective treatment the gold standard, most evidence-based treatments that have the best scientific support are again, this idea of really approaching instead of avoiding the trigger. In the case of trauma, it's the trauma memory. And once again, your brain plays this trick on you. And the reason it, it honestly makes me sad is your brain is trying desperately to protect you. Your brain is saying, Julia, I remember this horrible, horrible thing. And it was so horrible that even the thought of it activates me as if I was again being traumatized, right? When you really start to work, you know, do the trauma processing, people get very activated, right? So the brain's like, none of that, like shut that down. Like, let me protect you. Like put it down, put it in the cellar, put the bars on it. Let's never talk about it again. 
Okay. Well, the problem with that is that you then become in this like avoidance cycle and it's not a static one. It kind of spins down and down and down. So you, the memory starts to come up or you get triggered by something and you avoid more, you avoid more. And that's when I was saying earlier, people become like their lives become smaller and smaller and smaller. So I would say trauma is so intimate and so personal that the, the individual himself or herself, I, th I think you should choose the best course of trauma-focused treatment. And those things are things like prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, those are the, the top two. And then there's a third one um, that doesn't have as strong of an evidence base, but it's called EMDR. Mm -hmm. And the partner, I think what the part, the best thing a partner can do is give space, right? And really kind of take their cues from the partner. So some people might want to not want to talk about it at all. Some people might need time off from the kids because the, the trauma focused work is very, um, it's, you know, you're, you're doing specific exposures to the trauma for a certain period of time. So they might need time when they like need the kids out of the house for several hours or so again, I think it's this communication in a way that's really sophisticated around just the clear emotional needs of the situation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Julia, where would someone um, get in touch with you or find out more information about, you know, about your, your organization? A great site. So there's really two that I use. One is Neuro Health Partners. So that's just N-E-U-R-O healthpartners.com. And the other is I, I hang out uh, a lot on LinkedIn these days. So if you want to just find Julia DeGangi on LinkedIn, I would certainly um, love to connect with people there. That's wonderful. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. This has been so informative and yeah, I, you know, I, our audience is really going to benefit a lot from your knowledge. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. I certainly hope it was helpful for people. And um, thank you again for, first of all, having this platform. I think what you're doing is so important and for inviting me. Awesome. Thank you. We uh, want to wholeheartedly thank you for joining us today and for listening to Couples Synergy. Our passion is in helping couples have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couples Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the couple's weekend intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple. Look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.